This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy Woo! and sadness oh. and anger. Ah. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. Ah. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. Ah. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies. I am Crawford Gribben, the host of the channel. Today, we're going to be talking to Stephanie L. Derrick, an historian from Los Angeles, about her new book, the Fame of C.S. Lewis, A Controversialist Reception in Britain and America, which has just been published by Oxford University Press. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Crawford. Thanks for taking time out of what I believe is quite a busy international book tour. Yes, it is. I've been gone from home for quite a while now. Uh, we started in the UK um, and I spoke at the National Library of Scotland. Then I went over to Ireland, spoke at the National Library of Ireland and then on to New York, uh, Chicago, Toronto, and now I'm in Boston. That's great. Uh, the range of cities that you've just mentioned there gives us some indication of what a, a subject of interest C.S. Lewis continues to be. Yes, I think so. That's what I'm finding. Um, I'm finding that people are really interested in just hearing a new perspective on Lewis. Um, a lot of the work that's been done on him has been, well, some of it's been good, <laughs> and but much of it has been out of admiration of Lewis himself. Um, and I kind of take a, a different angle and try to give us a historical perspective on the man and, and him and his within the context of his time, Oxbridge in the 30s, 40s and 50s. Um, and then I go on to look at his fame, really, um, from within his lifetime and then forward to today. That's great. Uh, we'll get to the content of the book in just a second, Stephanie. But first of all, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm originally from Jackson, Mississippi, and I um, did graduate work at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and then um, at the University of Sterling. I did my PhD there in history. Um, and sort of the kind of background for why I wrote this book is that um, – you know, growing up in American Christian subcultures, uh, Lewis's name fl is floated around quite a lot. Um, he's mentioned um, from the pulpit. Um, everybody seems to have read Mere Christianity or given it away. Um, um, and that was just kind of part of what I was familiar with um, in, in my kind of cultural circles. And then in graduate school, I was taking um, a class on the history of evangelicalism. And the professor, this was at Harvard Divinity School, he um, he mentioned he being from Belfast, and also, which is also Lewis's hometown. He made this this comment that he found that American interest in Lewis was pretty high compared to his home country, and he was probably referring to the 80s and 90s because it's it's peaked a little bit more since that time. So, but anyway, this really interested me because I wanted to know. Well, well, that's interesting. Why? Um, compared to, to people in his home country. So that's what kind of kicked off this, this what became a 10-year project um, in, into looking at Lewis's reception. Fascinating, fascinating. Um, 
I think one of the most interesting things about your book is the way that it looks behind C.S. Lewis as an individual to think about the concept of fame and reputation. Uh, when we talk about C.S. Lewis, what is it we're talking about? Is it an individual or is it something else entirely? Hmm. That's interesting. Well, I think it depends on who you ask. Um, I mean, I think like with anybody, you can get a sense of the man himself. Um, he is certainly, um, he was a person and we can get to know a lot about him through his writings. But of course, with anybody, you can only get so far with what they've actually written. And it helps to get, for example, um, what other people said about that person. And in Lewis's case, there's quite a lot of people talking about Lewis in his lifetime and beyond. So that was an advantage to me as a historian to get beyond just what he has said to what others have said about him. But that's just two pieces of the puzzle. Then you have to go beyond that and look at, well, what is his context? What is he responding to? Why is he doing what he did? Um, and so that's another piece of the puzzle. And so, and then another, I would say beyond that is readers responses to Lewis and their context. So there, you have to kind of pull together a lot of pieces before you can kind of feel like, well, is this a perception of Lewis? Is this Lewis himself? You know, it's, it's a complicated matter. And, um, I think we're always guessing we never can get to the, to, to the real man, and that's okay. That's fine. It, history is a interpretive game and um, that's where the art is. And so that was what was fun about kind of looking back at, okay, what's been written about him and where is this, you know, just what the reader wants him to be rather than um, an engagement with as much as we can find about what was actually happening in his lifetime. Oh, fascinating. Well, one of the things your your book is very good at doing is, is showing the way in which there's a distinction between the C.S. Lewis who was operating within his own lifetime and the C.S. Lewis that's being sold after his death. And although I've been reading Lewis for many years, I've never really thought about the, that distinction in, in the way that you present it it's so, so um, uh, illuminatingly. And I think the thing that really struck me about your work was the way in which some of the stuff that's posthumously published shapes the reputation of Lewis in a way that it could never have done uh, during his own lifetime, uh, where he exercised great control and care over what it was that he put into print. Yeah, that's right. Um, during his day, you know, Lewis kind of talked a big game about not caring about what other people thought about him and not giving too much thought to, you know, his own reputation. But of course he did care. He did read reviews of himself and he did, you know, write blurbs and pick out photographs of himself. He did manage his own reputation. Um, but of course, yes, as you mentioned, he dies. And from 1963, when the date of his death, he's no longer in control. And that control um, is handed on to other people. Uh, first, it was, you know, Walter Hooper, who was, and, and Warney, his brother, who were in charge um, for in the 60s and 70s of Lewis's estate, managing his estate, managing which books um, were reprinted with 
in, in collaboration with the publishers, looking for new, you know, Lewis material that they could market and b- keep his name in among the public's um, perception, keep his name before the public. Um, and then that, that power transferred again to, um, his stepsons who were, who gained control in the early eighties of the C.S. Lewis and and created the C.S. Lewis estate. And that C.S. Lewis estate was in charge from the early eighties to today of the, of Lewis's image. And, um, one of the things that's interesting is that they really pushed the Narnia books because the Narnia books were the ones that could reach a mainstream audience. They were the big money makers. And, you know, you'll know that today Lewis is best known for the Chronicles of Narnia. And that's not wholly to do with the fact that the Lewis estate pushed those books, but it is partially to do with that. And, um, yeah, so it's kind of a complicated story from the time that Lewis died forward as to what is remembered and why it's remembered. In Britain, Lewis is first famous in the 40s. To a place, first becomes known to a popular audience during World War II at the height of war because the BBC asked him to do a radio broadcast. Um, and this is at a time when everybody is tuned in to the radio because it's critical to get updates about the war through one's radio. And therefore, if it was hoped and it actually happened that a lot of people would stay tuned after the war broadcast to listen to say, for example, a talk about Christianity by C.S. Lewis. So he really became famous during war, the wartime, that together in his with his publication, The Screwtape Letters. And um, so that's Britain. In America, he becomes famous at the same time as a Christian apologist, but really kind of more the late 40s. He kind of, there's a low, like a small group of um, people who know about him in the early forties through screw tape letters. And then when he's on the cover of 19 in 1947 of time magazine, that really ups his um, profile. And so he also has an American profile um, and some, pu- some publicity as a Christian apologist. So he's first known really as a theologian for the, for the layman for explaining Christian theology in, in plain man's terms, so to speak. Um, and then the Chronicles of Narnia were really a surprise publication from an author is just known uh, as a scholar, a medievalist, um, and a populist of, of theology. Uh, so, and actually, <laughs> I have there's a funny quote. Um, I can find it, um, but in, anyway, I'll sub, sum up his uh, his publisher his editor um, at Macmillan in New York writes to him. He's like, well, you know, these children's books, they're, they're fun and all, but could you get back to writing the religious apologetics that uh-huh. we're all expecting of you? Uh-huh. you know, so that kind of gives an indication like the children, the, the Chronicles of Narnia were really a surprise. And for Lewis, they were really a relief from the, really he kind of tired of writing Christian apologetics at that point. And some of that was, just exhaustion from writing back to Christian fans who were writing to him about Christian apology at an enormous level. And he had to keep up this enormous um, post and he got tired of writing about Christian 
Christian theology. And I think that the Narnia books are kind of a relief to him, a return to first loves of, of, of literature, of Edwardian children's literature, of, of magic. So, um, so that's during his lifetime. And then, but because the Narnia books are more appealing to a broader audience, they are the one, and because they are more adaptable to media, so television and movies, they are the ones that he became known for um, after his death, better known for. But that's not to say that he wasn't known for his Christian apologetics as well still, especially in America. In America, there continued to be a real love um, of his Christian books, and they, they continue to be very useful because as Christians in America were participating in, say, universities, for example, they, they were reaching for his books as a way of, you know, explaining themselves to, you know, your new philosophy professor as an undergraduate who's challenging your beliefs on, you know, creation, for example, whatever it is, people would often turn to Lewis in those cases um, because he was accessible and he was well known. Um, in Britain, on the other hand, there's really a moment of kind of poo-pooing Lewis, um, especially in like the 60s and the seventies. Um, and that's, that's kind of a complicated situation. He's loved in the forties, um, in a popular way after that point, in the sixties happen. And he's always, he's always a more complicated figure in Britain. There's always a, a strain of criticism, uh, in Britain that doesn't exist to the same degree in America. But after the sixties, um, his kind of old man Western persona of a kind of backwards looking big masculine figure isn't, it's not striking the right tone in Britain. Um, they're wanting to move forward. The culture is tired of hearing old white men, you know, talk about the past. So it, he really isn't the cultural fitting in the cultural moment post sixties as far as, as far as, far as his serious, works go um so that's a change and whereas in america that's a really interesting contrast because american christians in particular are bemoaning this sense of loss of cultural hegemony and dominance they're losing out their their mainstream um, voice. They're, they're losing to secularization in the, in the mainstream um, media, for example. And for them, Lewis is still kind of a hero of the faith because he has the big credentials um, of being associated with Oxford. You know, um, he, you know, there's a lot of Anglophiles in America, the tweed, the pipe, you know, this is all quite appealing, his association with Tolkien. This is all kind of a romantic, wonderful thing um, and serves a, a good purpose or a purpose um, for American Christians. In Britain, even British Christians um, are still kind of uncomfortable with Lewis's, um, with Lewis's persona, which I go 
which I go into um, into in the book um, at quite depth because it's, it's a little bit difficult to summarize kind of complicated persona that he puts on. But the British British Christians and British readers pick up on this um, persona at a, at a degree that the Americans don't. Um, so yeah, that's quite a long ramble, but I hope I'm getting getting my point across. Oh, fascinating, fascinating. You, you you talk a lot about Christians in your response there, Stephanie, but but really, I suppose what, what you're referring to is evangelicals, isn't it? Is evangelicals mostly in America who pick up on Lewis? Is that right? America, uh, American evangelicals are loud in their devotion. They're not the only ones. There's quite a few Catholics that are following him. Um, depends on kind of the use. American evangelicals are the ones that are the most devoted fans. They're, they're the kind of loudest and most earnest, but they're not the only fans. I mean, he's useful, like screw tape letters would have been used widely among many kinds of Christians. Sure. Same for American Christianity. So, um, but you're right. American evangelicals are the most devout and they're the loudest about Lewis. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the structure of the book? Uh, You've got a massive topic here, the fame of C.S. Lewis. How did you decide to approach that topic? Well, I tried to be narrative about it. I tried to follow some kind of chronology to make sense of, of this very complicated topic. So I, stay, I start with Lewis himself and the question specifically, why did he write for a popular audience? Why did he try to reach a mainstream audience and that I don't feel should be taken for granted. I mean, it wasn't every scholar of literature that was was doing that. And Lewis himself was criticized in his day for for taking time to try to basically um, persuade a a popular audience of his views on Christianity. That was a that was a um, controversial move. So I, I went back and asked why why is he doing that? What are his what are his motivations for that? And that that starts off the book. And then I take another lens on Lewis and I say, okay, what are his peers thinking of what he's doing and of him himself? Of he himself. <laughs> um what is their reaction to Lewis at Oxford and at Cambridge and just the literati? Generally, what's their view? Um, then I move on to kind of talk about, okay, so that's, we have Lewis himself, we have his peers. What about just everyday people? What do they know about Lewis at mid-century in Britain and America? And were there differences at mid-century? And then I move on to try to think about, okay, well, what happened socially? What are the big kind of movements in the 20th century that brought that had a bearing on why we know the name of Lewis today. And, you know, that was media, changes in media, changes in publishing, um, and, and also cultural changes. Okay. So then I move on to talk about, okay, well, how does Lewis's image move within that? And what happens in Britain, America and America comparatively um, to this complicated figure in very, you know, vastly quickly changing and dramatically changing times of the 20th century. Um, and then I kind of bring it up to speed and to the early 2000s and look at 
Um, well, this is an ever-evolving situation because actually American um, fascination with Lewis is now re-influencing British um, perceptions of mm-hmm. Lewis. Yep. So British Christians, I found, who had interviewed them, they were often saying, well, we're listening often to uh, somebody like Tim Keller, and Tim Keller is a big Lewis fan, and he's quoting Lewis a lot. So we're thinking, well, okay, maybe we should look at this guy again. So that influences his kind of resurgence, like a resurgence or a slight resurgence or kind of a, a new interest um, in Lewis uh, in more recent years. Fascinating. Um, your first chapter begins by discussing Lewis as an Ulster contrarian. What, what do you mean by that? Well, as you know, the Ulster identity is a really complicated one, and it was the same with Lewis. I mean, he used, I would say he always identified himself personally as Irish. Um, you can I looked into this uh, recently for my for my talk in Ireland to make sure I had my ducks in a row about it. Mm. And yeah, he he definitely kind of you he identified personally as Irish, but he also kind of used his English identity and the fluidity of a of an, a Northern Ireland Irish um, identity to his advantage, in the sense that. You know, people would know him for years in Oxford, and they never knew he was Irish, or he never talked about being Irish. He would have still had a slight accent, but he didn't speak openly or very frequently about his Irish identity um, as an adult. Um, So that's pretty interesting. Um, And I think part of that is that he didn't want to be penned um, as an Irish writer. Uh, he says something to Arthur Greaves very early on, he, his his good friend um, from Northern Ireland, and Greaves is talking, thinking about you know where to publish uh, his book, and Lewis advises him um, not to be too too closely or tightly associated as an Irish writer because then you know you're kind of pigeonholed. So I think that's kind of revealing. He himself felt very strongly that he wanted to identify with the broadest, um, most universally appealing literature. And that's what he strove for. Hmm. So that's very interesting. But as far as the book goes, I mean, I talk about him being an Ulster contrarian in the sense that this kind of going back to this persona that he had of being a loud, kind of aggressive, masculine, um, big-talking guy at Oxford. This is kind of part of his persona uh, when he's dealing with especially colleagues. Um, and every a lot of people comment on this, on this like persona of his. Um, and he himself talks about being a contrarian in the sense that he, and a controversialist, in the sense that this is a role he's picking up and playing with um, as a literary figure. The stereotype of the Ulster contrarian is um, not always very attractive. How did how did Lewis's colleagues in Oxford respond to that kind of persona that he projected? 
Well, I think it has to be remembered that Lewis knew a very large number of people. Lots of people crossed his path and lots of people really admired him and responded really well to him. He, he was very funny. He could, you know, be very warm. He could be very congenial. Um, but it, he could also be quite rough. He could be harsh. Um, he could be, especially if you were on the wrong side of things in literary matter matters. If, if you were a student of his and you were trying to defend modernist literature, mm-hmm. forget it. He could be incredibly rough in that situation. And by rough, I mean, he he was he was an expert in rhetoric he was an expert in words and he his memory was really amazing and he could just talk you under the table um and a lot of people in this culture kind of this was this was part of oxbridge culture um this ability to be incredibly witty um and to you know out debate the other guy hmm. but in lewis's case um, he had a tendency to take that a bit too far. He had a tendency to be um, dismissive and, you know, he, he gained a reputation for this. Hmm. Uh, was was again, his... again, this is like around, it's really in, in the circles of, of Oxford. It's kind of in the, pol- the politics of his college. So it's, it's kind of a, a small group that I'm talking about. Hmm. But yeah. There's a really interesting section in the book about his involvement in college politics and, and, and the ways in which the, the, the ironies in that um, in, in, in many respects. Uh, you, you mentioned there his hostility to, to literary modernism. And I think there's a passage in the book where um, he has some very negative things to say about T.S. Eliot. And, and then later on, you, you reflect on the fact that he and T.S. Eliot, I think, worked cooperatively um, in, a bi- in a new Bible translation, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. I mean, and that's, that's a good point to remember about this. Like, it was, I felt it was my job to kind of excavate this kind of neglected history around Lewis's reception among his peers, but it was very fluid, and it's easy to exaggerate hostilities. Um, you know, yeah, he was very harsh on, on T.S. Eliot and wrote, wrote publicly and privately about that. He was also um, publicly critical of Roy Campbell. Um, And he and John Betjeman had a really difficult relationship. But, you know, things, this is talking about decades and feelings change over decades. This is a very small world. And yeah, he, he, he worked with Elliot later. Um, And, you know, I, I went back and looked at, um, well, I found later that, you know, I tried to balance out the perception hmm. that that he's rough with his peers to say, well, and then a lot of people who spoke really badly about him would say, look, I mean, we also got a, we also cared about each other. Like we, we butt heads, but that doesn't mean that we, you know, universally hated each other. So it's, you know, it's it's a small world and it's very political and um yeah, it's a it's kind of difficult to get at from this distance. Mm. Um, but I so it it took a little some careful kind of excavation to kind of explain the dynamics at work. Sure, sure. Uh, there is a tendency, as you just observed, to to 
um, exaggerate conflict uh, in, in, in some of the reconstructions of Lewis's life and context. But there's also, you point out in the book, there's also a tendency to overly romanticise other aspects of his life, including his relationship with um, Joy Gresham. Yes, that's true. And this was a, a good example of the fact that it's not just Americans who are romanticizing Lewis. Um, the British audiences tend, tend to do that as well. Um, Shadowlands came out in 1985, and um, that was based on an American account of Lewis's relationship with Joy David Gresham, um, an American woman that he wrote letters with, and then that developed into romantic love, and he he married her. Um, and Shadowlands came out, and it was first a play, and then a television. Maybe it was a tele. I'm going to get my facts wrong. I think it was a television play. It was a play, then a television show, and then it was um, remade by Hollywood um, into a, a big budget movie. Um, so that was um, an interesting um, new recasting of, of Lewis's life um, and definitely kept him before the public once again. Hmm. And it's a much more palatable view of that part of his life than perhaps um, other sources might suggest. Yes, it kind of presents a very cosy cozy life that's interrupted by um, the big brash American um, woman in romantic love. Um, yeah, it's not, it didn't quite happen like that. Um, and there's there's definitely a darker side to that that story. Um, there was a new biography of Joy David McGresham that I benefited from that showed that actually uh, Joy very intentionally pursued Lewis um, as a way of getting out of her marriage um, and securing a visa. And um, so, but that again, that's not to say that there wasn't real love there. Um, it's just more complicated than we like to uh, make movies out of. <laughs> of course. So here we are, it's 2018, it's what, 55 years or so after Lewis's death. How many books does he sell at the minute? Is he still a popular author? He's still a popular author. And part of that is, most of that is the Lewis, the Narnia franchise. Um, the Silver Chair is currently being um, made into another uh, Narnia movie that's expected in probably 2020. So um, the Lewis uh, interest continues. Um, and American American Christians still find him really useful. And as I mentioned, British Christians have, you know, suddenly kind of a renewed respect and interest uh, of him because American Christians <laughs> have been exporting him through through their you know kind of newfound and by newfound I mean post war mm -hmm. American influence grows in the post war years globally and therefore Lewis is kind of exported with that new and that new influence so yeah it's a, it's a ch ongoing and changing uh, phenomenon but it certainly does not seem to be uh, abating. And there are some steady sellers in the Lewis back catalogue, as well as some new books. Uh, I saw recently C.S. Lewis on Prayer, which I think is a new compilation of various essays 
I think one or two of which hadn't been published before. Uh, but w- w- which of his books sell the best at the moment? Um, the Chronicles of Narnia are always the best sellers. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is, is steady. Um, and then Mere Christianity would be the next um, most popular. Those are consistently um, big sellers. Well, it, it's such a fascinating book. There's so many different uh, representations of Lewis in it. It's, it's such a rich study. If you're going to summarise all of this, Stephanie, how should we remember C.S. Lewis now? Yeah, I mean, it's. I find it a really interesting subject because there are so many different facets to Lewis. And it. I think one of the best ways that we can remember him is somebody that's engaged with his time. You know, he wasn't one-dimensional. He was very multidimensional. That's what makes him so interesting and engaging. But he was a man of his times, engaged with his times. And I think that's something that Christian readers, especially of Lewis, um, would do well to remember, that he is speaking to, you know, a Brit- Britain and not America of the 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, and he's not speaking to our time. And I think that, you know, he's also somebody that did what he wanted to do. I think that that's something that, um, especially people who are in, who are engaged with the mind and with writing, um, that's something I think that we long for because we are often pigeonholed, especially as academics into one, you know, one little circle in our world. And we write on that subject and we write for other academic audiences and for many of us, we have a lot of interests and we would like to engage with many different um, topics. But and Lewis did that because his times kind of afforded that more than they, they, they do t- today. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that that's kind of part of of why others of us kind of romanticize Lewis, because he could write could and did write whatever he wanted to. Um, there was pushback in his day, but it was still a time where he uh, could be afforded that liberty. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of difficult to sum up, but yeah, he was certainly um, of his moment. Well, Stephanie, we've taken up a lot of your time today, and thanks for giving us this time during your, your book tour. But before we wind up, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment, please? Sure. I'm looking at the history of publishing, actually, because I found that this was um, an area that's not been um, done very well for especially history of Christian publishing. So that's what I'm, I'm engaged in right now, as well as kind of try to publish some of these things that I found written about Lewis that um, haven't been uh, published before. Great, great. Well, Stephanie Derrick, uh, author of The Fame of C.S. Lewis, just published with Oxford University Press. Thanks so much for coming on to the show. uh, And thank you for writing this book. Thanks for your time and take care. Thank you so much. Thank you, Robert. 